0: welcome to the mastering the game of life podcast in this podcast there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life purpose prosperity philanthropy your host paul Lowe, the third sector mentor is the founder of hearts global cic which along with many other of his charitable commitments has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives particularly young people from disadvantaged communities author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Heart's Books. Introducing your host, Paul
1: Lowe. Welcome listeners to this Mastering Life podcast, where it's my immense pleasure to welcome Mark Gober, um, all the way from sunny San Francisco in the US of A, would you believe? And today, in today's episode, myself and Mark are going to be, going to be talking about his new book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. Mark, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much, Paul. Okay, so by way of um, a gentle introduction, Mark, I'd like to start by introducing a couple of testimonials around your book. And, and I quote verbatim, if consciousness isn't just a product of the brain, and if it survives the death of the physical body beyond space and time, then how does it fit in with our picture of the universe? And that one's from Dr. Irvin Lazio, two time Nobel Peace Prize nominee and philosopher. And the other one I'd like to share, which I thought was great, was from Goldie Horn, the Academy Award winning actress. And she says, Ever wonder why you are thinking of someone and moments later they call or connect to you? Magic? Coincidence? Maybe not new information on what we call phenomena is brilliantly shared in this must read book new pathways of the mind will open and perhaps shift your perception of reality time and space and above all consciousness bravo so just uh further by setting the scene mark i'd like to come up this if i may um and, I've, and I've, I've captured this off your website and i thought yeah this really sums up um you know, for the benefit of the uh, overall listeners, uh, where it's likely to be pitched, and I quote yet again verbatim off your website: General readers will find comfort in the implied worldview, which will impact their happiness and everyday decisions related to business, health, and politics. So. Let, let's let's uh, let's kick off then, Mark. So, what's your personal, professional, and educational background, Mark? Give us an insight into that, if you will, please.
2: Sure. While well, my book, "An End to Upside Down Thinking," is focused on the topic of consciousness, uh, my background is a little bit different. I work in the business world. I work currently in Silicon Valley uh, as a partner at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group, and we advise businesses on. Intellectual property strategy and business strategy, particularly patents. And prior to that, I worked in investment banking with UBS in New York during the financial crisis. So, doing traditional mergers and acquisitions and capital raising, restructuring, uh, focused on uh, banks, insurance companies, asset managers. Those were my types of clients. Hmm. Prior to that, I was a student at Princeton University where I Majored in psychology, but it was focused on behavioral economics. So my thesis was on Daniel Kahneman's prospect theory, which is a, a theory that he won the Nobel Prize for, and it focused on how people make decisions under risk.
1: Right. Okay. So a very, very different world, Mark, um, from from your book, really. A very different world.
2: Yes, very different. But I think even back in my college years, I was asking big questions, and I I thought about majoring in astrophysics when I was at Princeton, but I was also on the the tennis team there, where I was later captain of the team, and because of my commitments, it would have been too much to switch majors, but the reason I was thinking about majoring in astrophysics in the first place is that I took a few courses in that area, and it, it really sparked interest in existence and our place in the universe and what is the meaning of life, so I think those questions were always there, but I was always so busy with, with just different activities in life that they got pushed aside. And when I would think about questions of existence, I would I would typically come to the same conclusion based on the science that I knew at the time, which was that I couldn't find any meaning in life because I thought that our, our consciousness or our, our mind was just a product of activity in our brain. And therefore, when the body and the brain die, I reasoned, it must mean that our consciousness is over. There's no more consciousness. So all of the, the memories that we had during life, all the feelings and emotions, those must necessarily be wiped out once the body dies. So to me, life was just kind of an experience, but trying to come up with meaning beyond the fact that we just happened to exist, that to me was just a rationalization. And that was the background philosophically that I was coming from before I began my research.
1: Right, interesting. So a really kind of, um, relatively speaking, Mark, simple deduction that sent you, sent you off on a completely different in-depth analysis of, um, well, of this thing that we call consciousness. Because, and I'm sure you get this yourself, but certainly from the com- conversations I have, have with people across a, a massive spectrum, it's like, oh, blimey, where do you even start with that? Where do you even start so I find that very, very interesting, as I say, to, you know, th- this contrast that, uh, that took you on this fascinating journey, resulting obviously in your, in your book and, and then to upside down thinking. So a little bit more about the book then, um, Mark. And What do you mean by upside down thinking?
2: The conventional view in science today and, and much of just mainstream thinking has a fancy term associated with it. It's called materialism. Yeah. So materialism basically means the following chain of events. It says that the universe started about 13.8 billion years ago with an event that that kickstarted everything. Sometimes that's called the Big Bang. And the Big Bang filled the universe with particles of matter. And when I say matter, I mean uh, like atoms. So my table, I can touch my table, it's physical, it's made of atoms. So we have this physical universe. And when you have a big enough universe with enough matter, you're bound to end up with interactions between those pieces of matter. And that's just a fancy – there's a word for that. We call that chemistry, when matter is interacting. And in in this big universe, when you have enough random chemical reactions, chance tells us that we're bound to end up with a molecule that can replicate itself. So that's like DNA on Earth. So DNA on Earth leads to the evolution of – living species like a human being which evolves to develop a brain and from the brain comes consciousness when I say consciousness I mean our subjective inner experience so if I say that I am speaking to you Paul that I that's what I mean by consciousness and what materialism says is that that sense of identity that awareness that we have that is subjective it derives from matter or more specifically it derives it comes from the brain yeah. that is the conventional view known as materialism and that is what my book is regarding as upside down thinking by recontextualizing where consciousness fits in the picture so what i'm arguing in in my book and that's what all the different pieces of evidence that i show point towards is the idea that consciousness doesn't come at the very end of that chain but rather consciousness is first Consciousness is primary, existing uh, is as a more fundamental aspect of the universe, even than physical matter, and it exists beyond all space and time.
1: Hmm. Is it too simplistic, Mark, to suggest that, obviously, energy, you know, we're all everything... Um, Everything is energy and we merely change states. I mean, is that oversimplifying it to say that consciousness is there and then it, mass- it manifests itself in a physical form known as Paul, known as Mark, and, and that physical body one day will die, but the consciousness lives on. Is that oversimplifying it?
2: That's a great simplification. That That is another way of, of looking at the picture that I, I now think is likely to be true.
1: Hmm. Okay, because I noticed um, in some of my research, Mark, that uh, you refer to Rupert Spira. Uh, I'll come to that a bit later on around his new non-duality approach. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a great follower of Spira, but uh, yeah, let's, as I say, touch upon that towards the end. So in terms of your real interest around this topic, Mark, I mean, I know you've alluded to at the top of this conversation how you, you know, because your tennis commitment, how you majored uh, elsewhere, but, you know is was was stroke is the interest far deeper than that sort of well actually I'll go I'll take this road because of my tennis
2: really what happened for me is that in, in August of 2016 I initially heard a podcast On a a health show called Extreme Health Radio Mm. and there was a woman who described her psychic abilities on that show and she talked about working with energies and things that I had never heard about in a serious way beyond science fiction and here I was hearing a person speaking about it very seriously and it was her profession Uh, at the end of that show the woman whose name is Laura Powers mentioned her own podcast called Healing Powers in which she talked about interviewing other people that have had experiences like hers Um, So I decided to listen to her podcast and ended up in the course of a few weeks listening to all of her episodes dating back to 2011. And it was during that period that I realized something seemed to be up where I couldn't reconcile that all of these people that I I was hearing, that they were all just delusional or lying. So I I wanted to investigate it further. So uh, that led me to then look at a lot of the scientific research that I cite in my book. So it started off with anecdotal reports and then as i looked into the research more it started to align with some of the quantum physics that i had learned about previously and all the the big questions i had about the universe started to congeal whereas previously i heard maybe bits and pieces but a lot of the study of consciousness that had been absent from my own just personal analysis
1: got yeah got yeah so what was the process for writing the book then because Obviously, I mean, I've, I've read the book, Mark, and um, there's a lot of substantial um, stuff in there, and particularly from some notable people. I mean, I've already sort of flagged up from uh, Dr. Irvin Lazio in terms of his testimonial. Uh, he is one of many, what I would term, eminent figures, scientists, um, so, it, you know, it's obviously a, a book that's, uh, held in high esteem and, um, yeah, it's got some serious foundation to it. So, um, what was your process around, you know, moving that on in terms of writing the book, Mark?
2: When I began my research, I guess, technically in August of 2016, I was doing all of it out of personal interest. I had no intention of writing a book. So I, I was researching and then the, I would learn something new and become fascinated by it and, then research that further. And that was kind of a process I went through for about a year. Where if I wasn't working in my day job at Sherpa, what I wanted to be doing was to learn about these topics, whether it was reading books or listening to podcasts or YouTube videos. I was constantly learning. Hmm. After about a year of doing that and starting to tell friends about the research I was doing. I was getting a lot of very positive feedback from people, where people said, wow, Mark, if these things you're talking about are real, that is a a world-changing or a life-changing kind of idea. And so for some of the people that I was speaking with, they told me that their worldviews were actually shifting as a result of our mere conversations. So the combination of that feedback with my own just personal interest and the fact that I had, had accumulated a lot of knowledge, I decided in June of 2017 that I would try to write a book, and I kind of wavered on it, where at first I said, I'll do it, and then I realized how much work it would be, and I said, no, I'm not gonna do it. And then I had—I remember having a dinner with a few friends who said, why don't you try doing it, Mark? So I took the 4th of July holiday weekend uh, off and stayed in my apartment in San Francisco for about four days, because we had the holiday weekend, it was a long weekend, and I didn't do anything but write. So I ended up writing over that four-day weekend more than half of a draft manuscript, which I then finished over the next few weekends. So the actual writing of the book happened relatively quickly, but the real writing of it was the research for the prior year that went into the book.
1: Right. Okay. Wow. Any evidence, Mark, that we we all have psychic abilities? That that's
2: one of the major areas that I discuss in the book and just to give your listeners some context for that that notion of psychic abilities if we consider consciousness to be this fundamental aspect of the universe existing beyond space and time in other words consciousness isn't localized to the body and therefore the brain isn't just the producer of consciousness but the brains more like the antenna that's receiving it or more precisely, the brain is like a filter and there's some much broader consciousness out there but our brain shows us a limited picture like if those ideas are true then it's at least conceivable conceptually that the brain would be able to almost pick up consciousness that that is apparently external to us so things like telepathy which is mind-to-mind communication or remote viewing which is the ability to perceive or access something that's far away without being there physically these are all things that at least would be predicted sometimes by this, this model of consciousness. And I then devote several chapters to looking at these phenomena. I can start with some evidence for remote viewing. And the reason that I, I like to start with this one is that it was used for very practical purposes by the U.S. government. And But when, remote viewing, again what I mean is the ability to perceive something when you're not there physically. So in theory, someone who is doing remote viewing can be In San Francisco California and let's say there is something hidden in a safe in the UK the remote viewer in theory can see what that thing is in their mind without opening up the safe or without being told what's there and this is like if we consider all of reality to be like the stream of water where water represents consciousness each of us is almost like a whirlpool within that stream. That's an analogy from Dr. Bernardo Castro. So we have these apparently localized experiences, but if we kind of delocalize or open up our whirlpool, we might allow in consciousness or water from outside of that whirlpool. So with remote viewing, it's like accessing another part of the stream, even though you might be in one whirlpool, you're connected as part of the broader stream. And that is something that the U.S. government used for over 20 years during the Cold War, Uh, basically for psychic spying and when I looked at the evidence for this program I was it was really interesting to read the books of the physicists that ran the program so for example Russell Targ was a laser physicist who ran the Stanford Research Institute's program that the US government used for remote viewing and he talks about some of the amazing feats uh, that that the remote viewers were able to achieve Uh, for example There was a downed Russian bomber that was lost in an African jungle and no one was able to find it using normal means. The U.S. government used remote viewers to find this downed bomber that was lost in Africa using the psychic spies and former U.S. President Jimmy Carter even confirmed that this was done. So when I see examples like that uh, combined with some of the cia's own documents which have been recently declassified and i was able to include them in the book they say very explicitly that remote viewing is a real phenomenon and that's a direct quote
1: wow so evidence then mark around our consciousness surviving when our physical body dies what what's out there to substantiate that
2: we do have evidence for it it's a it's a more difficult topic i think because it's not something that we can directly experience. Even in the case of a near-death experience, which is something that I cover in a full chapter, these are instances where a person is in extreme physiological trauma where their brain is effectively off. So the Mm. the person might be in cardiac arrest, their heart has stopped, there's no blood flowing to their brain, and yet they are describing hovering over their body during this time when their brain is, is barely functional and sometimes totally not functional. They hover over their body, they see things in the room, from a vantage point above their body that is later verified as being accurate by those who were in the room and were lucid. So that is by definition not a hallucination. So if there, we have examples like this where there seems to be a consciousness that is existing when the biology is not functional. These, are, these point us in the direction of saying that consciousness isn't tied to the body.
1: I'm with you. I'm with you. So with an end to upside down thinking, the bookmark, um, challenging mainstream thinking how can the latter be so so far off base
2: it's something i ask myself every day still as as i find more and more research the evidence to me is overwhelming and yet in the mainstream scientific community the conventional view is that psychic abilities and surviving bodily death are completely ludicrous ideas and that there's no evidence for them so i think what's happening is a, a dynamic similar to what galileo experienced When he had all of his evidence in the telescope, which suggested that the Earth is not the center of the solar system, and rather the Earth revolves around the sun, that was an extremely controversial idea. And there were certain clergymen that didn't even want to look in his telescope to see the evidence. Hmm. So I think we have a similar dynamic right now. And I actually quote in my book Dr. Jessica Utz, who was the 2016 president of the American Statistics Association. She's someone who has looked at the statistical evidence for psychic abilities and actually was asked by Congress, US Congress and the CIA, at the conclusion of the psychic spying program, she was asked to look at the data, the statistical data, to see if what was happening was beyond chance. And she said that using the standards applied to any other area of science, psychic functioning has been well established. And that's directly from her 1995 report. So this is someone who is very credible Uh, Statistically in the statistical world and she's saying that these things are real and she's wondering the same thing that you ask Which is how how could mainstream thinking be so far off?
1: Mm. What
2: she has found is that many of the people who claim to debunk these ideas simply have not looked at the evidence So it's like they haven't looked in the telescope to see the strength of both the statistical and anecdotal data
1: and I suppose it, you know, yet again, favourite phrase of mine of, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Um, but it's, you know, new layers are being peeled back all the time, Mark, aren't they? Um, and That's that right. will that will ever evolve, whether it's, you know, in the context of uh, upside-down thinking or an end to upside-down thinking or, or whatever it is. Hmm, thought-provoking, to say the least. So how will this new line of thinking change people's lives, Mark? Because certainly the work I do um helping people find the purpose and i'll come to that more in the context of your book um you know what are the implications both positively and if there are any in your perception negatively what are they
2: well i can give you some of the implications in terms of how it's affected me and i think it might be similar for people who read the book and explore these topics the the notion that consciousness survives bodily death for me was a very world-changing idea because i thought life was random and temporary, and there was no meaning beyond this existence. And yet, there's research from the University of Virginia that I reference in my book, over 50 years, where they have studied over 2,500 cases of children, usually who are just between the ages of 2 and 5 years old, who are describing details of a previous life. And in some cases the researchers are able to find Uh, Medical records or historical records that are aligning with what the children describe and in the most Compelling cases to me the children have birthmarks and physical deformities. So their their physical body is actually Similar to what they describe as being their death in the previous life Uh, So there seems to be some kind of continuation of consciousness at least for me based on the accumulated evidence and that is a comforting idea relative to what I used to think on the one hand on the other hand that that some might construe as more negative is that well it doesn't end with this life and for some people that can be a disturbing idea that's some of the feedback i've gotten and i'll go back to the the near death experience that i referenced earlier what is often reported is known as a life review so again the person is in, is is in a has an impaired brain their brain is either fully off or just uh, almost completely non-functional and yet they have this lucid experience where their whole life flashes in front of their eyes They experience events particularly events of how they affected other people and they're judging themselves for how they behaved In some cases they re-experience those events through the eyes of the people that they affected in their life So let's say Bob is in his life review and he was recalling an event when he was extremely mean to someone named Sarah he might re-experience that event as if he were Sarah, and he feels the pain that he inflicted upon her and judges himself for that behavior, and then he comes back into his body after he's resuscitated, and those people are typically forever changed because their priorities have shifted. The reason that the feedback I've gotten from some people is that this can be this is sort of a negative is that it increases the accountability in our lives. It's like not only does our consciousness survive when our body dies, which might be comforting, but we, are, we seem to be accountable to ourselves for how we act towards others. And for certain people, that can be a disturbing idea to say, wait a second, I have to really think hard about how I'm treating others.
1: I, I see what you're saying. I mean, yeah. And when you put it in that context, Mark, that's for me is a massive, I, I can see how people would challenge that. Uh, but for me, it has to be about self-accountability and you know, by being the best we can be, Yet again, at the risk of oversimplifying, we part of that process is is the compassion that we have for others. Because for me, a world without love and compassion isn't a world. We merely exist, and I know that's kind of going a bit offbeat um, and softening the edges somewhat. But it it still encapsulates this whole. I think it's fascinating because this this core. Concept that you've written about, Mark, has got so many, so many knock-on. Um, so I, I, I view it like a massive tree with so many branches, so many twigs, so many leaves. And I just think it's one that it is that proverbial sort of thread of conversation that you know. The more questions that you ask, the more there is to ask. And um, you know, for me, that's just a prime example there. Yeah, so, I, I agree with you. Okay. Ever the pragmatist, when I speak about myself, Mark, and the work that I do uh, with helping people, as I say, predominantly to to find their purpose, how will this new line of thinking change people's lives?
2: I think some of the topics we mentioned uh, just now about surviving bodily death and being accountable for how we're treating people, that's one big area. Uh, But another area, I think, is a sense of empowerment, that if these abilities, these psychic abilities that I describe in the book, remote viewing, telepathy, uh, psychokinesis, which is the ability for the mind to actually impact physical matter, even though there's no physical contact. These seem to be things that all of us possess, even if uh, the abilities are just very subtle. And that's what the studies show in most cases, that unless you are like a superstar who's being hired by a government somewhere to do psychic spying, the, the effect sizes are much smaller but they still exist. So there is this empowerment, I think, implied where we have the, the power of our minds is much greater than we have been taught. So that, I think, has the ability for, for many people to shift things in a positive way to say, I have these abilities to really know things beyond just strict logic and rationality. I can tap into this broader stream of consciousness to direct myself in my life.
1: Mm, I see. Yeah. So how it changed your life then, Mark? To what degree? I mean, if we can talk in sort of almost binary um, quantitative terms, how's it changed? Radically?
2: Yeah, it, it has changed it radically. <laughs> radically is, is the right word. It, it's, it's been an adjustment. And I, I say this for the sake of your listeners who might, if they're newer to some of these concepts or are just getting inter- interested in them, the process does not happen overnight, typically, unless... If someone has a near-death experience, or in meditation, sometimes people have a mystical experience that resembles a near-death experience, or uh, sometimes psychedelics users describe some of these altered states, unless you have a personal experience that that is so overwhelming. If you instead take more of the intellectual perspective, that intellectual endeavor takes time to shift a worldview. So for me, it wasn't like I heard that initial podcast in August of 2016 and everything changed. It was a much more gradual process where I would hear new data that challenged everything that I thought I knew. And then I would sort of forget about it and go about my day. And then I would hear something new and say, wait a second, I have to reconsider this. And then I would go back to my normal view. So it was kind of a back and forth process where eventually the evidence was so overwhelming and the the body of evidence For me was so substantial that I had accumulated that I couldn't possibly with my rational mind go back to the old world view Mm. So I was then forced to reevaluate things like meaning and how I wanted to live life and what I thought my Purpose or what the purpose of a human being is and to me where I kind of come out And I allude to this in the book when I quote dr. Irvin Laszlo, who you mentioned is the notion that there seems to be a drive towards the evolution of consciousness, where if we do consider ourselves not to be bodies that have consciousnesses, but rather our identity is our consciousness, and we are experiencing a physical world through a body, uh, then the material world is a ground of experience. Because when we come into the body, we don't come into it holding anything physical, and when we leave the body, when the body dies, we don't take anything physical with us. Therefore all that transitions is the consciousness and the ways in which it evolved and that seems to be part of the life review Where we see it's almost like we are judging ourselves for how we acted we're seeing how we were able to Evolve and act in the physical body it, it seems like this stream of consciousness is in the process of evolving itself through the physical world So that is sort of a lens I now take to view life in general is to think about it as as a ground for evolving one's own consciousness and the, the consciousness of the collective because it's all connected anyway as being a centerpiece of the physical existence
1: Yeah again mark is it oversimplifying it to say that um and i know this is a term that's used quite a lot um out there um but is it oversimplifying to say that um uh we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Is that a little bit out of context of where you're at with your book?
2: No, I think that's a great simplification.
1: Excellent. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm I'm trying to put this as a cross, you know, the, yeah, again, Mark, and apologies for kind of saying the work I do, but some of the stuff I do with, um, you know, young kids, in, young homeless kids in the UK, for example, you know, for me, to break through to give them and I come from that backyard so it's very earthy it's very real it's very very challenging and dark and and desperate but I I absolutely believe in the power of some of the stuff we're talking about I haven't got it fathomed out yet um, far from it but I know that there's immense um, hope and power in it and so for me my challenge is to convey you know this material these insights in a language that these these guys and girls will understand to give them hope so that that's kind of what the top of this episode where i you know i put it um, in the context of of what you the quote you'd put on your website you know about sort of from a general readership point of view
2: yeah i think it's it's great that you're doing that paul and and that's something that i had in mind when i wrote the book and when i speak about the book what i'm trying to do is to give substantiation to those simplified statements that you make Mm. to be so where someone can can make a statement like our existence is to be a spiritual being that's having a human experience which is a simple statement that there's a lot of scientific evidence to back that up and that's what I'm trying to do so that people in in your position and other positions who are doing such important work in the world can have even more confidence in the work that they're doing
1: yeah i I get that i I both get that and appreciate it mark so what are the implications for what it means to be human for us then as a collective mark
2: well i'll quote the the famous physicist who won the nobel prize uh erwin schrodinger some may know him for schrodinger's cat he said in truth there is only one mind and that is a, a great summary of, of really where I'm headed with this, mm. which is that we are connected as part of this stream of consciousness. And therefore, even though we have the appearance of separation, because that's what our eyes show us, and we interpret the world uh, based on what we see, we, we see separation. If there isn't the same separation that we see, if, if in fact at the level of consciousness underlying physical reality, if that's interconnected or entangled, to use the term from quantum physics, then the way we treat others and the way we think of ourselves as human beings, I think has to shift. I think we, we then have to view ourselves as being part of the same whole and therefore being much less separate than we appear to be. So I think in terms of what does it mean to be a human being, I think the human being is kind of this physical vehicle that allows the one mind to have an experience and an infinite diversity of experiences through many different bodies. But fundamentally, we're all connected as part of the same stream. And to me, that's a super, that's a very powerful idea, not just for people on an individual level of individual interactions, but I think interactions between nations and how we think about politics and just how society is structured in general.
1: Yeah, rather than standalone, dare I say, standalone human beings, ego-driven standalone human beings i might add yes exactly so with this breakthrough if i if i can and i I think breakthrough actually is not um too stronger too stronger word mark how what how might we view life and death differently that contrast that that perceived sort of as i know use the word again binary black and white we live we die we start it's over i I think
2: if we take the the materialist view of life which is one that i implicitly had where i thought that consciousness just came from the brain and when the body dies the brain turns off it's over then the the motto one life live it which i hear a lot or you know you only have one life to live so just accumulate as much as you can and have the best time you can. It, it's kind of a more self-centered and myopic perspective of life relative to now what I, what I now think to be true. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the materialist view implies, well, you're only going to be here for a short amount of time. There's no accountability beyond this body. So we may as well accumulate as much as we can physically because all there is is material anyway and we're just byproducts of that matter. So accumulate as much as you can It it, it feels good to be nice to people, but we're not actually connected to each other beyond the fact that we're inhabiting the same planet and have similar genetics because we're part of the same species. We're not connected beyond that. So the incentive is ultimately back to the individual. I think those sorts of ideas, things like the individual comes first and we're all separate, we should just accumulate as much as we can, those are, um, I think those are embedded into the fabric of a lot of society today about how we think about living and the meaning of life. Whereas I now think there is much more beyond this individual physical form as we've discussed. And I think it puts the the personal existence into a much bigger context.
1: Mm, Definitely. As a very bare minimum, I think wherever we are on this particular consciousness journey, it's thought provoking. And, and I'm, I'm being sort of playing a little bit of devil's advocate there as a bare minimum. So what are the implications for science, medicine, artificial intelligence, and Elon Musk's Neuralink startup?
2: For science and medicine, generally, the implications are massive because the conventional view in science and medicine is that consciousness, again, comes from the brain, even though scientists can't currently explain how it happens. Science magazine has even called this the number two question that remains in all of science. So it's an open secret that, that consciousness is, is still a mystery. And of course, what I'm arguing is that, well, consciousness doesn't come from the brain at all. So if we, if we recontextualize consciousness as being the basis of reality, then effectively all of our equations in science and the way we think about medicine and, and healing has to shift, necessarily, in a big way because something has been left out. And in medicine, I'll go back to the University of Virginia researchers that I mentioned. And this is more specifically in their division of perceptual studies at the medical school. When they look at children who have memories of a previous life and when the children describe or the children have birthmarks or physical defects that are aligning with how they died in the previous life, what we're seeing is a physical manifestation of something that is not derived from their genetics, and it is not caused by their direct environment. And that's a very big deal, because in medicine, it's typically believed that everything that informs us physically is a product of our genetics and our environment. And here we have something that is outside of that, that is affecting the body. So, the researchers at the University of Virginia have called it a third factor. So, I mean, Paul, can you imagine if there is a third factor in medicine that is not currently being considered? What could that do to how we treat people?
1: Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, and at the risk of mega oversimplifying it, <laughs> we don't know this, which is the conscious, unconscious model. We don't know what we don't know. Um, right. But the good old ego thinks we do. Um, yeah. Wow. OK. Um implicating that on a more softer side, dare I say, on a more human side. Um what are the implications for things like love, beauty, happiness, and even world peace? Because this, you know, sort of semi-apologise, Mark, for keep sort of beating this drum, but for me this has to, you know, has to have some practical value when I'm talking to these young kids and things like love and peace. Um, you know, is is hard enough as it is, but I know that that's the kind of middle language, if that's the right term, that I'll be able to then reach them, because I know from my own torturous journey that, you know, the the world is a very, very, very dark, hard and desperate place without these things. So I kind of, the way I'm conceptualising this personally, Mark, rightly or wrongly, um, is you know, what you're saying is, is something that's absolutely, phenomenally groundbreaking. And that kind of, you know, that stepping stone for me to convey to these the, these young homeless people, particularly, is around the softness of language, of love, of beauty, of happiness. So what are those implications, Mark?
2: It comes back to the, 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 the general thesis, which is that we are all interconnected as part of the same consciousness, even though our eyes seem to show us that we're separate. So when we think about something like world peace, for example, the, the conventional paradigm of materialism that promotes separation is really potentially damaging for any kind of peace because the incentive always comes back to the individual as being a separate entity that has no real obligation beyond him or herself. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, what's implied by that idea. So Rupert Spira, who you've mentioned previously, and I mentioned him in my book, number of times, I think he's a great philosopher and teacher of our era, he said that if we, if in the future of humanity, if we look back, and if we haven't survived, or if society has really taken a downfall, it might be because materialism has survived as the prevailing perspective, that perspective of separation. So I think when we, when we talk about peace, or world peace, or anything like that, it, it all comes back to the idea that we're not separate. So, something like love or beauty, those are ideas that in, in conventional science are, uh, they're not well explained by biology, for example. So, love is, so let's take lust. Lust is something that seems to be very well explained by evolution, because we can, we can reason that people need to procreate in order to continue their genetics. So, lust would promote that that's a behavior that would be evolutionarily selected for love on the other hand is potentially related to that because if you care for others that might be a a trait that is selected for uh using just classic darwinian evolutionary theory Uh, but it's not as clear-cut because it's is like is love required for that to happen whereas lust is is the act of procreating that is required love seems to be a softer issue and beauty where where if we recognize the beauty of a mountain or a, a landscape or we, we see something in nature and that gives us awe that is another thing that is not well explained by science like why is it that we find these things so beautiful why is it that we all have this experience of love there are, are theories on this that will that go beyond biology and the idea comes back to the interconnectedness that love might be partially from genetics and a you know a, a desire to foster the continuation of of genetics but it might be also the recognition of our same self in another person so it's seeing the interconnectedness having a moment of experiencing the interconnectedness when it's person to person whereas with beauty it might be that's that feeling of interconnectedness but it's from person to something that is impersonal like an object in nature so it's the the embodiment of the interconnectedness is how we might think of love and beauty and things like peace and happiness might be byproducts
1: I was at um, um, October 17, I was in Carlsbad, uh, California, that's when I first met Rupert Spire, who ironically is from Oxford in England, um, and he just blew me away with his, uh, and I'll use the word again, uh, Mark, is practical, real, um, down to earth, this is the way it is, guys. You know, if you believe me, great, if you don't believe me, that's also great. But I loved his approach, and 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 what we all what just listening to you there, Mark, around this kind of I suppose this this polarization between the the objectivity and the and the subjectivity, because um, somebody kind of you know they they offered to the Tom Peters, one of the great uh, American quality gurus, uh, perception is all there is, um, and I've got to admit that up until my. Sort of listening to spire in a bit more depth and I've obviously uh, followed him subsequently. that was my belief around you know is that mountain beautiful? Well I say yes, you say no, who's right? neither of us um, it, perception is all there is, but that was challenged um somewhat by this well actually some uh, this perception thing is part of the mind and and as you know you know for the benefit of the listeners. Mark, he, he, Aspire speaks about the mind, the body, and the world, um, and the non-duality. Because isn't it true that the vast majority of us, we do perceive this? You know, our mind tells us to do something, and we do it. We are our mind. And and I've since personally had that breakthrough now, where I say, well, hang on, I've got a little finger, I've got a right knee, I've got a a left ankle. These are all part of me but they are not me. And similarly, I now have that relationship with my mind. I embrace it as my best friend. And that for me was the starting point of what I um, I believe was my deeper conscious journey. So to come into this kind of level that you're talking about, Mark, is, is really fascinating and, and absolutely uh, groundbreaking, in my humble opinion. Well,
2: thank you very much and and the point you just made i think is a really critical one and what i love about rupert spira is that he brings everything back to one's own personal experience mm. he's deeply introspective and and to summarize what you were describing is when we think about our identity is that the, our body is actually an experience of our consciousness yeah. it's not our what we identify with so we could even say It's not my leg, it's the leg. It's the leg that is experienced (laughs) by the consciousness. And the same goes for the mind or the thoughts. The thinking is experienced by consciousness. If I say, Paul, I am thinking, I am thinking. Mm. I am not the same as the thought. I am that which experiences the thought. So it, it recontextualizes our own identity. And it's something that anyone can do by just thinking about who am I and how am I the experiencer of both my mind and my body and the physical world.
1: Yeah. And he puts it across in, I mean, that one of the, you know, he uses several examples, but the one that I really massively resonate with Mark is the example of the TV screen and where he suggests that, you know, I is the TV screen. It's neutral, it's blank, it's ever present and the actions on the screen, the characters, the dramas, they come and they go. They come and they go. And it's that separation, isn't it? That, that, that insight about that separation. Well, I've just watched a film and, yeah, and I got really into it and I was that character. Well, the TV's off now, so you're not that character anymore. That was, as you say, an experience. And it comes and it goes.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a great analogy. It's it's that we are the screen and we are the experience of the characters on the screen as well. But sometimes we forget that our identity is the underlying screen and not the character. Instead, the character is just like a coloring of the screen, but the screen has been there the entire time. So as a collective humanity, it's almost as if we have forgotten we are the screen. We over-identify with the character. And now we're coming back to realizing, wait a second. Yes, we are the character in the movie, but we are at the same time the screen or that which experiences the character. So I could even say that I am not Mark. I am that which experiences Mark.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I get it. I get it. So as a businessman, Mark, this is your first public appearance into the scientific domain. Uh, and on page seven of your book, you talk about, and these are three magical words to me, and I know they they can be a little bit sort of cliched about changing the world, but so changing the world, Mark, what does that look like to you? What does that, what is that?
2: I really don't know. I really don't know. It's a good question. And it's, it, it, my process has been just one step at a time from the beginning. I was interested in the topics. I began researching them. The thought of writing a book came much later. And for me, it's always been about bringing information to people because I know how transformative it was for me. I yeah. wanted to make that accessible to other people. And I was fortunate to be connected with a, a, a great literary agent and publisher, uh, Bill Gladstone of Waterside Productions. He represents Eckhart Tole and Neil Donald Walsh and other people in this field. So he's given me an incredible platform to get this information to more people. and. I I don't know what kind of impact that will have on the whole if the book gets to more and more people and if people actually begin to shift in the way, uh, the ways that you and I are describing, if if we can see people changing their behavior towards others in a more positive way and looking more positively on their own lives, what could that do to the world? I don't know, but I, I think hopefully it can alleviate suffering, suffering for many people and bring a lot more peace and happiness
1: yeah I mean that was it's kind of I suppose a a bit of a paradoxical question wasn't it really because by asking you that I was actually delving into your mind which you know we've just spoke about Spira uh, and the mind body and world example that sort of detached um, it's not me it's part of me so it's uh, yeah yeah not really not really a good question to ask I think because there isn't an ideal answer or, or or atypical answer to that anyway it's a
2: good question, though.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right. So you uh, I believe you've got a podcast as well, Mark.
2: I have a podcast that will be coming out. It has not been released yet, uh, but I've already conducted uh, in the range of 50 interviews and probably will be conducting more. And I'm working with producers to release it sometime in 2019. And the people that I interview are many of the same people that I discuss in my book including Rupert Spira, but also many of the scientists that I, I mentioned, uh, such as Dr. Dean Radin, Dr. Eben Alexander, who is a former Harvard neurosurgeon who had a, a life-changing near-death experience. So my hope is to be able to bring this information to people, not only through the book, but also uh, allowing people to hear from the scientists and the practitioners directly.
1: Okay, so is, is, have, you got a, have you got a name for the podcast, or is it too premature to release that, Mark?
2: We, do, we don't have an, a formal name yet officially, but I will be announcing all of it through my website, which is just my name, markgober.com, and also on social media. So we'll be getting it out there once we have details.
1: Which is a very, very nice, seamless intro, uh, Mark, to my next uh, question as, as we look to wrap up now about how can people find out more about this fascinating topic? How can people find out more about you? How can people contact you? Um, And you've kind of just flirted with answering that. I think it's worth repeating, Mark.
2: My website, markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com has more information on me, my book, my podcast. There's also a contact page where you can send messages directly and also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, Feel free to reach out on any of those forms of media.
1: Brilliant. Okay, so. By way of, um, yeah, finally wrapping up then, Mark, I'd, um, I'd like to finish, if I may, on those three immortal words, changing the world. I'd certainly like to regroup with you and have another conversation around, OK, Mark, um, I need to take this stuff. I need to take your stuff, Spira stuff. It needs to get out onto the streets to overturn these epidemics and this desperate way of living. And I'd certainly welcome the opportunity to have a follow-up conversation with you around uh, achieving that goal.
2: I think that sounds terrific. I would love to do it, Paul.
1: Excellent. Anything else to, to add, Mark, before we finally sign off?
2: No, I want to thank you again for having me. And I hope that this was a, a useful introduction for your listeners. Again, the book itself is much more of the evidence and the framework for these ideas. And I think today we've we've summarized the implications. But I, I do want to reemphasize that it took me a really long time to get to the point where I could really say the implications with confidence. The, the, the process of internalizing everything to the point where it was how I viewed reality,
1: it can take time. Superb. Thank you, Mark. And... Thank you to the listeners for tuning in. As Mark says, I, you know, I sincerely hope and, and I'm sure it, there's been there's been insights and value to this podcast episode. So thank you for being for being part of it. Until the next time, keep safe, keep loving and keep mastering
0: life. Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to Paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowheart.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember, mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.